0: Deeper on everything you heard, um, why does it matter and how do we do it? And so if you are coming to worship next hour, um, we're looking at our mission vision statement again at the beginning of the year. We're going to talk about our church being a refuge for broken people, why that's important. And and this morning in Sunday school, we're going to look at the ultimate, like, why does it matter? it, it answers the question, who cares, right? Like, why does it matter? Uh, it needs to matter. There, there's, a, there's, an, there's a very important reason uh, why it matters, and then we're going to look at that and how we do it. <clears throat> I want to preface this by saying a lot of what I'm going to tell you uh, comes from a book that I just read that Wally gave me to read. He came to my office one day and said, you've got to read this. It would be perfect for the Mission Vision series. It's a book that's called You're Not Crazy. Um, it's written for pastors. Has anybody read that? You might read, you've read It's it's fantastic, isn't it? If you haven't read it, you might want to put it on your list. It's only seven chapters. It's a quick read. Uh, you're not crazy, talking about predominantly us living in this world uh, where we're kind of becoming the minority when it comes to sanity um, <clears throat> and, and holding on to the trees of the gospel and scripture that you're not crazy. Um, but it, it's written geared towards pastors. Um, and it has to do with developing... A gospel culture in our churches, um, which we're we're actually pretty good at by God's grace. When, when you read the book, um, but but his his opening couple of chapters that I'm gonna that I'm gonna use really highlights the importance of of why we're a refuge for broken people. Like why why is that so important to us? And so he, he starts off. One of the pastors, two pastors, wrote this book, and one of them tells the story about. Seeing one of his congregants in the grocery store. This happens to me all the time. I think it's fun. I have have my own little game. Is it possible to get in and out of Kroger without being seen? The answer is no. Um, Which is fun because you don't ever know who you're going to see. And Saturdays are the best because I'm usually incognito. Um, Yesterday was in an outfit. I'd been outside and then went to do something. And then, you know, my family's like, you cannot go out in public like that. And I was like, who cares (laughs) no one to impress anymore like why does it matter Um, and so normally when I'm in Kroger I'll identify you before you identify me and I don't want to be the weird pastor that just hey what you know and so I'll sit there and wait for a minute and see if you connect the dots especially it's bonus on Saturdays because it's not what you're used to seeing Um, and so I got this story that this guy tells he said he's in a store and a grocery store, and he, he sees a congregant of his church that hasn't been to church in some time. Those are always fun, um, because you never just walk up and say, like, hey, where have you been? Like, they don't want to have that conversation. There's a reason why they haven't been. You just, good to see you, you know, we'd love to see you. So he said they exchange pleasantries, and, and um, they're talking, and the conversation's coming to a close, And this woman has been a faithful member of the church for years. And um, he knew that she's been going through a a life crisis, a big life crisis in, in her church. And so as the conversation's ending, he says, which is fine, we sure have missed seeing you at church. We'd hope to see you again soon. Great. Here's her response. I'll come back when I'm doing better. Because she didn't want people to see her when she was in the midst of, quote, unquote, one of life's messes. And so she responded to her pastor and a Kroger, I'll be back. I'm just waiting for the storm to pass. And I get things back together enough to be able to walk back into the church building. And this pastor says, it was at that moment that I realized that we have a problem as a church. He said it was twofold. Number one, that we have people that think that they can't show up until their lives are put together is a problem. And he said, and number two, she doesn't see it as a problem. Which means that she's not alone. Which means that unbeknownst to the pastor, the current of the church, the culture of the church is you have to have your life put together before you dare show up in front of everybody else. And he talks about how, how, how heart-wrenching it was for him to hear this. And then he said this which I loved church should be the place that we sprint to when things are at their worst, not the place we avoid until we have our Instagram worthy Christianity back in place. Let me read that again, because if this isn't true of Madison Heights, me and the session have failed you, failed you. Like, We should all be fired in the morning if this isn't true. Because this is our job to make sure that it is. Church should be the place we sprint to when things are at their worst, not the place we avoid until we have our Instagram-worthy Christianity back in place. He said this, and then he begins to realize in his mind, and what we're going to talk about this morning, That in their church at the time, there was a mismatch between the beauty of the truth of the gospel and the culture of their church. A mismatch, a misalignment between the beauty of the truth of the gospel and the culture of their particular church. That's where we're going to drill down. And I want to show it to you in a place that he goes to. Uh, it's not one of the places you would normally go to, but it's brilliant. Um, and and I and I want to tell you this before we go there. There are the older you get, the wiser you become. If you if you get wiser, sometimes you just get older. <laughs> you will learn in your life. This is free. This is off the notes. It's dangerous, but it's free. Write this down. The older you get, you will realize that there fewer are the number of the hills that become that you are willing to die on. If you're like my age and up and you are still willing to die on every hill that's in front of you, like you missed it. <laughs> How you have the time and energy for that. There are so many things that you're just like, this is not my problem and it's really not that big of a deal. The older you get, you realize the things that are important and the number of hills that you will die on gets smaller and smaller and smaller. But when it comes to one of those hills, you're willing to get bloody over it. Y'all, that's how important this is to us as a church. There are a lot of hills, paint color, color of the carpet, a lot of things that are not hills that we're going to die on. We will bleed together on this one. This is a sacred one. That Madison Heights Church is a refuge our broken people, where we want you to sprint in when life is broken we'll die on that hill. It's our ethos. Um, I'm going to tell you more about it. So if you have your Bible, look at First Timothy chapter 5. You're going to think this has no business uh, being the springboard text, but it's going to make sense in a minute. First Timothy chapter 5 verses 4 to 8. Somebody tell me what page it's on and yell it out to save everybody else's time. 993. 993 in your Pew Bible in Sunday school. Page 993, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 4 to 8. We'll start in verse 3 just for the We're only going to look at really one verse. <coughs> a second. I wrote down the wrong thing. Hold on. That's why I'm confused right now. Nope, I didn't. Should never second-gift myself like that when I even checked it. <clears throat> first Timothy chapter 5, verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without, so that they may be without reproach. Now, here we go. Verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith... And is worse than an unbeliever. Now read that verse again. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, this is the phrase we're going to talk about, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. All right? Now, this is the ultimate reason why we are refuge for broken people. It's in verse 8. People say, why? Why does it matter? Who cares? This is what the author pointed out that I thought was genius. And this cannot be overemphasized enough. He makes this assessment about his own church and basically says, it's a safe place. It's a refuge only for people when their lives are put together and they're Instagram worthy. Right? Right? Only when you're at your best. Nobody posts the pictures of when they're at their worst. So, therefore, it is quite possible to be absolutely correct in a church's doctrine and theology and be totally incorrect in the church's ethos. It is absolutely possible to be spot-on accurate in a church's doctrine and theology and to be absolutely wrong in its ethos. Now, he uses the word culture in the book. I think he should have used the word ethos, uh, and here's why. Ethos is the spirit of the culture. The culture is the group that agrees on the same shared values and those kind of things ethos is the spirit of the culture. And so it's like when when new people will move to town and they visit our church and and sometimes people want to go to lunch or come by my office and we'll have conversations and I'll always say, hey, there's like three other churches, four other churches. If I were you, I would look at before you join join our church. And they'll say, oh, why? And I say, because everybody's ethos is different. And we all believe the same things. I mean, it, you know, us and Redeemer and Highlands and Pear Orchard and First. We all believe the same things, but the ethos is de- the ethos is the way it feels. This church does not feel like First Pres. First Pres does not feel like Madison Heights. We don't feel like Pear Orchard. They don't feel like us. That's fine. It, it it's the way it feels. And so when picking a church, you know, it's great that the theology is there. and We agree on the same things. It's where is the ethos more of a fit for you? Like a lot of people want it way more buttoned up than we are. And those people, I'm like, hey, I can tell you two or three other ones you would love. I always tell you, steal it from my former pastor. We're all a bunch of mavericks that found each other. That's our church. Could you go somewhere else? Absolutely. Would it be the same as coming here? No. Because you're going to have to button it up a little bit. A lot of the reason why you are here and why I am here is because the ethos. It's the air that we breathe. People always say it's, there's just something about it. It's just that thing. What they're trying to verbalize is ethos. <laughs> and so this pastor says that there's a disconnect Between the ethos, between the spirit of the culture, the vibe of the church, and its theology. Now, here's what that means. According to verse 8, if the ethos and the theology are not both in alignment with one another, then what have we done? We have denied the faith. You want to know why we and the men that you elected to lead this church will die bloody on this hill? Because if this church isn't a refuge for broken people, we have in practicality denied the faith. That's why it matters. Here's what I thought was super interesting here. When we think of denying the faith, we think only of theology, right? I usually do. They denied the faith, so I'm like, okay, now we're talking about Derek Webb, right? We're talking about ex-Christian singers who have left the faith that now wear dresses to award shows. That's who's denied the faith. You know how it starts. They, they begin to drift Kind of away from the things of God, and then maybe they deconstruct and they begin to question things, uh, and then they believe heretical teachings, and then the final act is they leave the faith and they commit apostasy. And what Paul is saying in this text is that's certainly one way to leave the faith, that's certainly one way to deny the faith in doctrine. But there's an entirely other way to deny the faith, and that's in practice. When our actions are not consistent with our doctrine, when both are not in complete alignment with the gospel, we have denied the faith. And so whether it's a theological failure or a failure of actions This is why ethos is so important because y'all we can deny the faith by what we believe and by what we do, which means that practical theology and practical application are both important. And this is why we labored over the words of the mission statement. We're a refuge for broken people. Why? Because that is our ethos. That is who we are. That's the gospel of grace. I've had a handful of people. One in particular, I'm not going to mention the name. Um, but when they started visiting the church years ago, I think it was, we went to lunch, and it was an introductory lunch. And um, and he basically asked, he was asking for permission to come to our church. Uh, And he said, you don't know me, but I'm actually known and something happened uh, and it's going to get a lot of publicity. And I went to another church that we are affiliated with and they told me that I couldn't worship there. So I figured I'd just start with the pastor and get the bad news first. And I let him tell his story and I said, there's no other church probably that you could go to other than ours. Like you are our target market. (laughs) You are why we're here. <laughs> Everybody else is in the same boat as you. They're just sin hasn't gone public yet. Or hopefully ever. Y'all, this is why the theology part is important to the application part. <clears throat> we believe, because scripture teaches, that we are justified by grace through faith, correct? If you don't believe that, you can't join our church. Non-negotiable. So here's what that means. If we believe that we are are saved by grace through faith, it means that our church does not believe in self-justification by works. I can tell you a hundred other churches you can go to if you want to sail that ship. This is not one of them. That's not taught in the Bible. We don't believe and scripture doesn't teach that you can be saved by your works or your merits. Because aside from it not being taught in scripture, when a church believes that, you're not going to believe this. When a church believes that, when a church believes in self-justification, the, the ethos of that church becomes legalism. When a church believes that it is possible to save yourself by your works, the culture it creates, the ethos that you breathe is legalism and hypocrisy, which absolutely nullify the grace of God. Everything becomes about scorekeeping, right? You ever been in a church like that? I have. Everything becomes about judgmentalism and superiority and arrogance in comparing ourselves with ourselves, which the Bible warns is not wise. You ever been in a place like that? Where nobody would ever say it, but you know they're thinking as they're talking to you. Oh, I feel so much better about myself because at least I'm not Wally. <laughs> I had a bad week, but God. <laughs> I feel so much better than I've been to church because I'm better than somebody else. Y'all, if we believe that we are justified by grace through faith, then the culture that that produces is the exact opposite, right? It should create an ethos of grace. Like, that's the air you breathe here that comes out of the vents. When people are like, there's something about it, just what is the feeling? What is going on there? Grace is the centrality of everything that we do. This Bible is so heavy. (laughs) I knew this was going to happen. Y'all, the doctrine of grace, the more that you and I believe it, should produce an ethos of grace. And here's why. If you and me are justified by grace, then we are totally free. Y'all, if you can ever get that to go from here to here, it will change your life. <laughs> if I am justified by grace through faith, then I'm free. And that produces an ethos of grace because all of my worth and all of my value and all of my identity and all of my acceptance is based on the performance of Jesus Christ and not my own. It's done. I'm in. And so that in practicality means I don't have anything I have to prove to you the goal of my life is now not to impress you. The more that you and I believe that we have his favor because of what Christ has done, the more that we can love and serve one another without competing with each other. Y'all, that ethos of grace is why we are a refuge in a safe place. It's like in counseling appointments, the first like five minutes. If it's just a rogue, hey, can we? Can I come by your office this week? Blah 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 blah. Um, that's never like, hey, I, just, I, I had ten minutes. I wanted to tell you that you're doing a great job. That's never happened. Like nobody. When it's that, I know it's bad. And so the first, you know, five minutes are. The plane is circling around the airport and I'll finally be like, why are you here? I don't know how to say this. I don't know how to tell you this. I just, I don't know. And it'll be, I don't know for about 30 seconds and I'll say, let me put you at ease. <clears throat> You're not going to believe this, but after doing this for 27 years, there's nothing I haven't heard. You may have done it, but I've probably already thought it. <laughs> I've already committed the sin in my heart. They're about to tell me that you did. Actually, but I'm telling you, you can't shock. Like, we've seen everything. And because you, too, are loved and accepted and delighted in by the Father, even when you blow it, of course this is where you're supposed to come. That hasn't changed. That's why it's a refuge. That's why it's a safe place. If we only showed up on weeks that all of us had it together in our Instagram worthy Christianity, we could go back to one service and we wouldn't fill up one quarter of this room. Right? Come on, man, nobody can do that. (laughs) I can tell you tons of churches in the city if you want to go to one of those. This is not one of them. This is where you come when the storms are hitting because of the doctrine and ethos of the grace of the gospel. There is no safer place that you can be in Madison, Mississippi, than in our church if you belong to us. It's not. Oh, you're not going to believe. Yeah, well, you line the circumstances up right, I'll do the same thing. Of course, I believe you did it. I'm shocked that I haven't done it yet. <laughs> this is where you come. This is the bomb shelter. <clears throat> Yo, know, it's important to us because if we are to be anything less than that, we have denied the faith in terms of practical application. And we're not doing that. It's not, a, it's not negotiable. Second question of the morning. It's interesting in our mission statement, as most people say, this portion of the Sunday school is brought to you by Kincaid's fine clothing. It was a free cup. My sister-in-law works there. Ask her for her. You made her. <laughs> um, you know, we don't say our goal is to be a refuge. Are we one day hope to become a refuge, um, we were very particular on the statement that we are a refuge. Like, this is what we are. And so how do we remain a refuge? And, you know, when we're all dead and gone, how do we pass the baton off for the ones that come after us? Carry on the legacy of the church being a refuge. Um, look at First John 1. Uh, again, this author points this out that I thought so many things that he says are, are indicative of our church. Just so encouraging. <clears throat> First John one five to ten. These will be super familiar verses for most of you. What page are we on? Say it again. Ten twenty one. First John one five to ten. fueled by grace notice with me the ethos of that text um, what that produces in the lives of of those that are practicing what what he's teaching and this is the word that that a lot of people throw out to describe our church who are new is the word real what you see in that passage is realness not posing not pretending, not mask wearing, not playing games with one another. Y'all, grace produces transparency, right? Intimacy. Remember Dave Busby, my hero, used to always say, intimacy, the definition of intimacy is real simple. It means into me see. That's intimacy. I'm going to let you see in me. What makes us real? It's the fact that we're free. Y'all, nothing else will make you real. We are authentic. We are real. We are transparent because the truth of the gospel of grace has made us free. I don't have to impress you. You don't have to impress me. We're free. And that creates an authenticity that is part of the ethos of our church. And y'all, this is what living in the light produces, right? We bring everything into the light. That's the goal. Don't hide anything in the darkness. We have fellowship with one another. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin, which means this, and this is a huge part of being real. Living in the light involves the confession of sin. And you're thinking, oh, yeah, well, that's why we do it once a week, kind of. That's a, that's a soft, that's an underhanded pitch. That's your silent confession. That's great. Glad that we do that. Y'all, living in the light means the personal confession of sin to somebody else. Let me tell you why it's important. And I, don't, I, I am not setting up a confession booth. I'm not going to be your confession person. Like, no, I don't have time for that and find somebody else. But I mean, really, find somebody else. Not to grant you absolution, but because of this. There is no greater freedom than having at least one person, one, that you love and trust, that you can confess your sin to, knowing that they won't judge you. No greater freedom you'll find in your life. If you don't have somebody, you need to start praying that God would lead that person into your life. There is no greater freedom than having someone who knows everything. And you know, you found the right person that once you've finished confessing your sin, once you've brought it all into the light, instead of offering you suggestions or advice, those are the worst. Like if the first time you confess your sin, somebody says, well, you know, you should have thought about find somebody else. I'm not confessing my sin for you to tell me advice. I don't need that. Like, I know that I shouldn't have done that, and I know how I shouldn't have done that. I'm telling you because I want to get it into the light. You know you found the right person when you confess your sin to them, and then they say, okay, it's my turn, let me go. Now you found the right person. Find someone that you can trust that you can show the worst part about, that you can confess your sin to, that will turn around and say, let me confess my sin to you, and we don't need advice, and we don't need suggestions, and we need, don't need books. And the meeting ends with, hey, can we pray for each other? That's living in the light. Like one person, let me tell you why it's important. Besides just this like wave of freedom that you experience in your soul when one other person knows. The one that wants to ruin your soul, the enemy, wants it trapped inside of you. His goal is isolation and shame and guilt. And if he can have you by yourself in the midst of your sin where nobody else knows, he's got you right where he wants you. Y'all, living in the light is is being willing and honest to say, I don't want to be able to get away with my sin. I don't want to be the only one who knows about it. I want to feel the freedom of confession and hear the assurance from another person that I am still loved and forgiven and pardoned and prayed for because it's easy for me to forget when I'm constantly afraid that somebody's going to find out, right? Right? I want to feel the freedom of confession and hear the assurance from another that all these things are true. Y'all, that is how grace creates an ethos of safety and security and refuge because it's real. It's a safe place for broken people because it's real. Because the gospel of grace creates a culture of transparency and authenticity And freedom because we truly believe there is no sin that the blood of Jesus can't cover. Again, if you don't think that's true, you're at the wrong church. We wholeheartedly believe that. So we're willing to admit our failure. We're willing to face them. We're willing to speak them out loud in confession. We want to bring them into the light so that we can walk together in the light of forgiveness. We admit we're sinners, we're broken people. Anyone who doesn't, Paul says you're a liar. So y'all, if we can be real about that at the onset, we're sinners, we're broken, we don't have to pretend about anything. And the result of that is a culture of freedom and grace and gospel. That's what makes us a safe place and a refuge. Now, I'll close with this. I told you this story years ago. You probably don't remember it. I hope it'll be better if you don't remember it. If you remember it, it's still good. <clears throat> um, years ago in, in Brazil, there was a couple, and they were extremely poor, and they had a daughter. <laughs> so she grew up in, in extreme poverty and you know had always told her parents, when I get old enough, I'm leaving. I'm not growing up like this. I want better for my life. Um, as soon as I'm able, I'm leaving. And so she gets, I don't know, 16 or 17, 18, whatever it was, it doesn't matter. And um, <clears throat> without telling her parents, she leaves. And so, with no education and no marketable skill set, she ends up in the capital city selling her body at night. And some months go by, I don't remember how many specifically in the story, and her parents haven't heard from her, don't know where to find her, so they go looking for her in the city, fearing that the worst has become of their daughter, of which it had. Not knowing how to contact her, not knowing where to find her, knowing that she's going to end up in motels probably. They had brought a a a small picture of her, whether it was a school picture or something. They had bought a picture of her, brought a picture of her and made a bunch of copies. And they went to every hotel or motel lobby in the capital city and got permission from the clerk that was working at the desk to display it, either on the register or on a bulletin board or at the desk. So, You know, they had basically said at every hotel and motel that would, would you display this? We're looking for our daughter so that when she comes to check in this motel, she will see this. And they were all like, sure. They wrote on every single one of the pictures her name and then said, wherever you are and whatever you have become, We love you. Please come back home, mom and dad. Y'all, when we say that we're a refuge for broken people who believe theologically the gospel of grace and then seek to live it practically daily amongst one another, here's what I want you to remember all week and every week to come. Once you leave here on Sunday morning, I want you to imagine your picture all over town, at work, in the gym, at school, at the store that reads, hey, whatever you did this week, whatever you did since last Sunday, whatever you became, please come back home next Sunday because you were loved here. You are loved at the refuge for fellow broken sinners, because of who we are in Christ Jesus, and because His blood has covered us from not part of, but all of our sin. Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, would you um, would you continue to be gracious unto us and and deepen uh, and widen the flavor of the ethos that you have created at this church. We will be so careful to give you all the glory for doing so. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.